Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Moira. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, so this is it. We've reached the end of our, our series on Revelation. Well done for, for staying the course. Um, I wonder how you've found it. Uh, there may have been times when you felt completely sort of overwhelmed and bamboozled by it all. Um, but hopefully there have been some times too where God has really spoken to you so clearly and revealed some tr- fresh truths and treasures from the book of Revelation. However you've, you've felt or you feel right now, I'd really encourage you to, to keep going, to keep exploring or, or listening again to those talks or watching those videos again where perhaps you're wrestling with something that you still kind of quite haven't got your, your head around. Um, but for now though, we're going to finish the series by following on, sort of straight on really from last week where we thought about this so-called sort of tale of two cities. Uh, one of those being Babylon, which represented the world without God. Uh, to thinking about the other city, the new Jerusalem, and heaven meeting earth. And it's quite a, quite a stunning concept to, to wrestle with, really, and be thinking about. Um, so if you're ready, uh, let's dive in together and pray first. 
So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can be here together this morning. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, dwell amongst us, speak to our hearts, and challenge our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what beauty we find in the verses that Moira read to us just now. Um, I wonder when you hear them, do you feel encouraged or excited or hopeful? You know, we're, we're approaching the, the pinnacle of the book of Revelation. And all that we've read so far leads us to this point. You know, we, we can read kind of the verses that we read in isolation from the rest. But they can't be fully understood unless we've read the rest of the book first. The brightness of this heavenly city contrasts with the darkness of Babylon. And every facet of it represents a fulfillment of the promises that have been mentioned previously. And in these final chapters, the primary focus is on the triumph of hope and the repeated message of grace and invitation. You know, once again, not everything we read is to be taken literally, as Sue reminded us. But we do need to take seriously the, the symbolism and the space that it's given in order to fully understand and appreciate the glorious truth of the grand finale of Revelation and, of course, the Bible itself. So first, let's have a look at uh, a new heaven and a new earth. The idea of a new earth is quite a familiar theme in the Bible. Many prophets uh, spoke about it. You can see in Isaiah 65, verse 17, for example, where it says, For behold, I create a new, the new heaven and a new earth. Sorry, I'll say that again. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the new heavens that are referred to here, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that the heaven where God is. The Bible uses heaven in three senses. The first is sort of like the sky, and then the next one is sort of, you know, outer space. And then the third is where God dwells in glory. And so here, where the Bible's talking about new heavens, it's the first two that are being spoken about. The ancient Greek word translated new here, uh, which is kain, if you want to know, uh, K-A-I-N-E, uh, means new in character or fresh. You know, think along the lines of, you know, I feel a, a totally new person after I've had a spa day. It doesn't mean sort of new or recent in time. Uh, this isn't just the next heaven and the next earth. This is a better heaven and a better earth, replacing the old as the first earth will pass away. And we read this will truly be a new heaven and a new earth, not one that's sort of simply put back together or rejigged with all the same bits and pieces that we see around us. We'll recognize it, but at the same time, it will take on a completely new dynamic and, and atmosphere. In Luke 21, verse 33, Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will live forever. And there seems to be a, a, a genuine sort of physical transformation described here, not just a spiritual and moral one. One theologian notes that in this chapter, we see that the history of time is finished and the history of eternity is about to begin. So there's this refreshing and a renewing rather than a, a violent annihilation of all that is known. 
And so then in verses 2 to 4, John describes this new holy city, Jerusalem. And these words, holy and new, distinguish it from any earthly city. And so this is, this is our direction of travel. And so we're going to sort of go through the proverbial keyhole uh, and have a look at it for a few moments. The name Jerusalem gives it a, a continuity with earth. Uh, but this is the place that we find our true citizenship. Uh, Philippians 3 verse 20, for example, reminds us that our eternal citizenship is in heaven and not here on earth. And its description as a city reminds us that this is a place with many people interacting with and in relationship with one another. This isn't isolation, but this is the perfect community of the people of God. You know, here on earth, we, we, we have not known and we will not know communities without sin or failure. But here we're offered something unique, a pure sinless community of righteous, morally unambiguous, and a truly perfect city. I don't know about you, but it sounds like somewhere that I'd like to go. And Jerusalem is described also as a a bride for her husband. And perhaps for John and for some of us, that's a, a striking and beautiful image that resonates And the reference to the the tabernacle recalls recalls Moses' uh, tabernacle and the dwelling place of God on earth in the Old Testament. And then it represented God's presence here. But the tabernacle of God is the reality of his presence right here with us. Verse 3 says, he'll dwell with his people and they will dwell with him. There's no barrier whatsoever. God desires to live in close relationship with us. And our purpose is to be his people. And that simply and beautifully sums up God's desire and humanity's purpose. And it's such a glorious truth for us to hold on to. I love the way uh, that Charles Spurgeon reflects on these verses. He saw God's dwelling with humanity as the ultimate restoration of what was lost in the fall. He says, I do not think the glory of Eden lay in its grassy walks or in the boughs bending with the luscious fruit, but its glory lay in this, that the Lord God walked the garden in the cool of the day. Here was Adam's highest privilege, that he had companionship with the Most High. And that companionship, by its nature, means the absence of a few things that we here on earth experience far too often. Because there'll be no tears, there'll be no sorrow, no darkness, no death, and no pain. Every tear, every single painful, gut-wrenching tear... And there will have been many in our lives will be wiped away. Every tear of disappointment or sympathy or yearning or loss will be dried forever. God's eternal presence and eternal, never-ending comfort will be ours. And then, (laughs) John's vision in verse 22 goes on to describe how every part of this new city will carry the fragrance and the presence and the hallmarks of God. Uh, To start with, there's no temple in it. Uh, In the ancient world, it was completely 
unthinkable to have a great city uh, without many different temples. It's like saying, you know, I don't know, I, I went to town and there's no Primark. You know, how utterly ridiculous. Or, you know, I went to town and there was no, you know, Starbucks or Waitrose or whatever. Uh, you get the idea. Uh, but in this city, there is no temple. Not because it's lacking or because someone forgot to put it there, but because there is something so much better for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The temple hasn't been removed, but expanded in that everything, everywhere, every place is holy and is the dwelling place of God. And I, I reckon that's pretty cool. Um, through Jesus, all creation will be the place that God rests and rules the world with his people. Heaven will be a place of pure worship. And so there won't be a temple. And there won't be the, sort of the need for the normal things by which we navigate our days. Uh, the things that distract us including things like buildings and screens and how the PA is set up and all the refreshments rotors. You know, they just won't be an issue. And our focus will be solely and completely on the person that we worship, Almighty God. You know, none of our joy or, or beauty or, or knowledge will be based on sort of created things, but only on the Creator. And by faith, we can know that right now. We can decide to put our trust in God so completely that our joy, what we consider beautiful and good and, and where we set the foundation of our knowledge is based on Jesus and not anything else created. In heaven, the light and joy of proximity with God will mean that we know him as he knows us. And we're not entirely certain who these kind of kings of the earth are that are mentioned, but they indicate that there will be order and organization saved from a corruption of spirit by, by the God-breathed influences of the heavenly city. And so there will be perfect order, deep joy, and unending peace. Our purpose will be fulfilled and everything that distracted and, and weighs us down will be no more. But you, you still might have a few questions. You might be thinking, well, hang on, will we, we sort of recognize each other in heaven? You know, where, where are we going to live? What will our address be? Will we be able to sort of find each other? It's going to be a pretty big place. Um, are these the kinds of questions that maybe keep you up at night? Sometimes, or maybe it's just me. Um, I remember when uh, we first knew that we'd be coming to live here in Winchester and that I was going to be serving my curacy here at Christ Church about two years ago now. Uh, we were really keen to know where we'd be living. Uh, and as it was during lockdown, um, uh, the previous curate's leaving service was broadcast online. And as part of that service, you may remember this, uh, the, the service went live to his house uh, and there were some gifts dropped off on the doorstep and sort of people said their goodbyes. And uh, my wife and I were, were watching, uh, obviously to, to say goodbye to the previous curate, but also to see what the house was like, because we really wanted to know. So we watched it, and we thought, okay, great. And then sort of later on that evening, we went back and watched it in slow motion, so that <laughs> when the door opened, we could see where the, all that door, all the little, where does that door go? All oh, the stairs, though, what's a nice colour wall? And it's, I mean, it's really sad, and probably just a little bit embarrassing, but we just wanted to know what our new house was going to look like. 
And, and the curiosity that we have and the questions that we have about our eternal future, what it looks like in practical terms, are, are natural ones that we will all have from time to time. But we don't need to concern ourselves with any of it. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter because we can have faith in the new Jerusalem that heaven will sustain us and nourish us like nothing we've ever known before. Not even a house in Badger Farm. Looking at the imagery in chapter 22, though, we can get some kind of idea of what it might be like. Verse 1 describes a crystal clear river flowing from the throne of God. And throughout the Old Testament prophets, such as Isaiah, would use the picture of a river as a powerful expression of richness and provision and peace. Uh, And this is a powerful image as water is precious, particularly to the eyes and ears of John's readers in the east. Uh, And this water is also completely clear, just as God's motives are clear and unpolluted. And they come directly from God's throne. And so they can't be anything but abundant and pure. Verse 2 then describes this tree of life. And here, as Sue mentioned, the grand sort of biblical narrative comes full circle. We begin in the Bible with a tree of life in the book of Genesis, which man could not eat from after the sin at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now it appears here once again. And it might be hard again for some of us to accurately picture this description of biblical landscaping that follows with the tree's roots kind of seemingly on either side of the river. That some commentators see the tree um, as a collective reference for a series of trees that would stand on either side. Uh, But however we might depict this image in our mind's eye, the reappearance of the tree points to the restoration of all things. The trees will produce fruit, suggesting that in some way time will still pass in heaven, but perhaps not quite as we currently understand it. And that may even prompt us to ask well, whether, whether we still eat in heaven. Um, I definitely hope there's going to be an endless Chinese buffet uh, with industrial quantities of cream cakes that aren't the least bit bad for you, um, but maybe that's just me. Uh, the evidence of Scripture suggests that we can, but we won't need to eat. Uh, Angels eat with Abraham, for example, in Genesis 18. And of course, the heavenly reunion between Jesus and his people is described as a marriage supper in Revelation 19, verse 9. So I think those of us that might, you know, sort of feel a bit peckish for some of eternity, uh, we, we might be catered for. So there's this street, there's a river, there's trees, there's fruit, there's leaves... You know, we to take from these verses that this is a literal or or a symbolic description of the heaven that followers of Christ are promised. Well, of course, this is a vision after all, and it seems that language might well have reached its limit when attempting to describe the most perfect and beautiful of places. And maybe we can't really describe sort of another dimension without using symbols. But it will be reasonable to suggest that when we too see the river, that we might say, oh, that looks like a river. And that we'll each see and interpret its majesty and its beauty in a unique way. What is certain is that the curse of Eden, the fall of humanity that we read about in Genesis 3, will be no more. And not only that, it will be exchanged 
with the throne of God and of the Lamb. The throne of grace and mercy. The throne which says it is done. Nothing and no one and no force of evil or even Satan himself can ever lay a finger on any believer ever again because the throne of God has triumphed and the Lamb has won the ultimate and final victory. And we will see his face. There will be face-to-face fellowship with God in the same way, almost, that we're looking at one another now. We'll, we'll be able to gaze into the face, the very heart and soul and character of Christ Jesus. And finally, finally understand him and his work and his love and all that he is as we've never understood him before. But that's, that's then, that's in the future. What about now? Well, because of Jesus, we can know a glimpse into the face of God today. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul anticipates a greater fulfillment of our seeing the face of God, as now we see in the mirror dimly. But he says we shall know him just as we are known. It's as if his name will be written on our foreheads, and there will never be any doubt that we belong to him in what will truly be the greatest glory of heaven. To know God and to know Jesus more wonderfully than we ever could here on earth. And so the closing words of Revelation, and indeed the Bible, remind us that Jesus is coming. Surely I am coming quickly. Right to the end of Scripture, we're reminded to be ready and watchful. And so that's the message of Revelation and of Scripture itself, to be Uh, to ready ourselves for the triumphant and glorious return of Jesus. The answers to the problems of life don't ultimately rest on our shoulders, but in the return of Jesus. There's nothing and no one that will stand in his way. And no matter who we are or what we've done, no one is beyond the mercy or out of reach of the love and grace of God. And as Mike reminded us at the 11 a.m. service last week, there is always a way home. The Bible sets out the story of God and his pursuit of us. And Revelation animates this story through its vivid and striking imagery and metaphor. And we are invited to become part of that story. Not to be passive observers as the battle unfolds before our eyes, as if we're sort of watching it on a big screen. But to participate in the struggles and share in the victories. You know, we live in a world where the four horsemen of war and destruction are running wild. And yet we are gathered as an army, ready to battle the spiritual forces in his name. We may know what it feels to be helpless and vulnerable, but we can also know the protection that God provides. 
We can also know, for sure, for certain, that as we accept the invitation to live out this story, we can be certain of how it ends. It ends with the powers of darkness and oppression and injustice defeated and the glory of the heavenly city paved with gold under our feet. And so are you living ready? I wonder if we could close with just a very short prayer um, that we can just affirm or maybe say for the first time that we want to accept this invitation. It's just a prayer that simply says, Lord, I accept your invitation to join in the story of Revelation. Make me ready. So let's pray that now in our hearts. Lord, I accept your invitation to join in the story of Revelation. Would you make me ready today and always? Amen.